Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Bibles to Hebrews 6, please. The height of this platform reminds me of the starting blocks when I was on the swimming team. <laughs> we, had, we didn't actually have blocks on our team. We had what was called a bulkhead, which went all the way across. It was a solid thing all the way across the pool. And it was about this high off the water, maybe, maybe a little higher, maybe as high as this. And uh, starting was something that I excelled at on the swim team. Uh, you see, a good start, we practice starts. You know, you, you might look at them, uh, you know, when they're swimming on TV, and you think, well, they started, big deal. Oh, no, no, you gotta, you got to do things just right, you know. And you got to get up there on the edge of the block, and, and you got to get a good push so you fly out through the air. And ideally, you go almost flat and enter the water nearly flat, because if you're pointed down, you go too far under the water and it drags you down, slows you down. As soon as you hit the water, you start kicking, but you don't start pulling because that affects the drag and the glide and all of that. I was excellent at starting. I was exemplary at starting. The only problem was the races involved more than just starting. <laughs> there was a more to it than that. If it had just been about starting, I would have been first in state maybe who knows in Hebrews chapter 6 God is going to talk to us about doing more than just starting in the Christian life follows I read Hebrews 6 and he's building on the thoughts of, of, of that he's been giving in previously in chapter 5 and so he says therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles, let us go on to perfection. I want to consider this passage uh, maybe if you if you would uh, backwards in other words I want to look at the second half of it first because in the second half of these two verses he tells us what the elementary principles of the Christian life are and he starts uh, he essentially seems to give us three duplic uh, three uh, couplets if you will two sides of an issue and the first one is repentance from dead works and faith toward God when we talk about starting the Christian race the issue of salvation is obviously the beginning point. And if you would turn with me to Romans 10, I think we can understand a little bit better about what he means when he talks about repentance from dead works. Romans 10, and we'll start in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. 
Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, you need to understand that the people of Israel or the Jewish people or the children of Jacob or a, a host of other names we could use are God's chosen people. Those are the people he chose to work with in the Old Testament time period. And because of their rejection of Christ, God has put them aside temporarily and poured out his primary spiritual blessing on non-Jewish folks, us Gentiles. There's coming a time when God's going to bring the people of Israel front and center, and we call that time the tribulation time, and there's going to be a tremendous national revival amongst them. Here, the Apostle Paul, being a Jewish person, a true believer in Christ, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, for his Jewish relatives, if you will, is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He said, the problem is, they, have, they, they are really fervent for God, but they don't have the right knowledge. Verse 3, 4, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, in the Old Testament time, they were quite fervent for God, but perhaps even there they were missing the point a little bit. And the point was true faith in God results in a following or an obedience of the law. And it would appear that many of them just thought, all I have to do is do all of these good works, these, these laws that God has given, and he will take me to heaven apart from my faith. And when Christ came along and said, here I am, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to pay for your sins, and you need to believe in me. They said, no, we don't want that. We want to keep doing these works of the law. And even if they were doing them in the right way, in a God-honoring way, in the Old Testament time, once Christ died, was buried, and rose again, those works of the law became nothing for the Christian. And so they became dead works. This Hebrews 10.3 just, just jumps out of my Bible when I think not only about Jewish people, but even more so the rest of the world. For they being, Romans 10.3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness in doing that they have not submitted to the righteousness of God you want a good definition of what the dead works are in, in Hebrews 10 verse 1 it's any work that tries to earn you salvation it is a dead work it is lifeless in the Old Testament God tells us that all of our personal efforts to earn righteousness all of our deeds of righteousness that are done to earn his favor are like filthy rags. And the nicest way I could interpret filthy rags to you is dirty diapers. That's literally what it says. If you are here today trying to do enough good things so that when you die, God will look at you and say, my, you've lived a great life. Come into heaven. 
If you're laboring that way, you are laboring under dead works. They will not give you eternal life. And they will not give you life here and now. As we come back to Hebrews chapter 6, he is telling these Christians, folks, we need to not go back and keep talking about the dead works. They were dead then, they're dead now, they're not going to do us any good. In particular, these Hebrew Christians, that's the name of the book, were all thinking they needed to keep this Old Testament law. There are some churches today who think they need to keep some of the Old Testament law to earn God's favor. And God says, no, it's a dead work. Anything we do to try to earn God's favor is a dead work. And what we must do with that dead work in coming to Christ is what Hebrews 10.1 says, we must repent from dead works. Repentance is a very colorful word in the Bible. It means to change your mind and to change your life. If you're going this way, you turn around and go the other way. These people believed that these works trying to earn God's favor had some value, and God says, no, you have to change your mind about that. If you ask people around you, are you going to go to heaven when you die? A lot of them will say, well, yeah, I sure hope so. I think so. I'm Probably, yeah. And when you say, if you were at the gate of heaven and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Nine out of ten of them, if, if it's a man, he'll say, well, I've been a pretty good husband and a father. You know, try to be an honest guy. And if it's a woman, she'll say, well, I've been a good mother and so on. God says we ought to repent of that. We have to leave that behind. We have to say, I cannot do anything to earn salvation. I have to leave that behind. I'm a sinner. One of the great points of Hebrews is Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. He can do something to pay for sins. You cannot. I cannot. We have to repent of the dead works and exert faith toward God. It's two sides of the coin. We let go of our faith in ourselves, and we embrace the faith of Christ, the faith in God. In Hebrews 11:6, later on in our study, we're going to come to a great verse that says, He who comes to God must believe that he is. You want to know how to become a Christian? Number one, believe that God exists. You need to believe that. And... You need to believe, as Hebrews 11:6 says, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What does God intend to do with your life if you come to him? He intends to fulfill and complete your life in a way that you never could. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. One of the almost universal goofinesses that I have observed when people are in difficulty, that as they look forward in their life, you know what that's called, don't you? That's called worrying. But as they look forward in their life, and they think about obeying God, they almost universally think, I'm in a difficulty, and if I obey God, things are going to be bad. <laughs> now, does that... It, you know what that is? 
That's the goofiness of sin. That's what that is. He that comes to God must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never really believed in him, may I just say to you that God has good things in store for you? God has a great life for you. Now, there will be a life of challenge, but it will be a great life. The basics of the Christian life start with repenting from our own attempts to gain salvation and putting our faith in Christ as our Savior, embracing Him so that we become a child of God. He goes on in Hebrews 6 to say, the elemental things of Christianity are not only repentance from dead works and faith toward God, but they are the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands. Now, right away, you're going, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, only one baptism. I know that verse, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I know we only dunk people once. That's right. But in case you weren't in my baptism class, you got dunked twice. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You got dunked once when you weren't looking. That's right. There is what is called spirit baptism. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute again, Pastor Dave. That's what those charismatic churches do. No, <laughs> that's not what they do. It's what God does. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we have all been made to drink into one spirit. In fact, in, in uh, I believe it's 1 John, God says, if you don't have the spirit of God, you're not God's child. Do you know when you got baptized by the spirit into the body of Christ? It's when you believe in Christ as your Savior. Spirit baptism is not when you are baptized into the Spirit. That is never the case. In fact, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send another comforter, and when he comes, he's going to teach you all things, and he's going to glorify me. The Spirit takes you when you accept Christ as your Savior and puts you into the body of Christ, and you never come out of it. This church is supposed to be a representation of the whole body of Christ. The whole body of Christ being all believers who have ever accepted Jesus as their Savior from the day of Pentecost until God says it's over. And we have been put into, that is what I call real baptism, real spirit baptism. Other things happen at the same time. Romans chapter 6 says that when we were baptized into Christ, we identified with him in dying on the cross. Our sin nature was crucified on the cross through our baptism or our joining together with him. That's the real baptism that you don't see and you probably don't feel and all of this other stuff called spirit baptism is not. Well, what's the second baptism? It's plural baptisms in Hebrews chapter 6. The second baptism is that one right there in the baptistry. The one where we dip you under the water to show a picture of you identifying with Christ 
And through that identification, dying and being raised again, as Romans 6 says. And we do that because Jesus himself, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, says, do it. You want to know why we baptize people at all? It's because Jesus said, do it. And if he says that it's a command, and we need to obey it. And if you want to know why we dip people all the way under the water, because that's what the word means. It means immerse. That's the word that's used in the Bible. And of course, it also is the word that matches us picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in our uniting together with him through our spirit baptism. That is what we might refer to as dedication, as I have called it in your notes. We have the doctrine of salvation, and then we have the doctrine of dedication, of following God, of being connected with him. I tell you what blessed me this week. I, I mean, you know, you can disagree with me, and it's perfectly okay, because this is America. I'm glad that we went to Iraq, and I'm glad we succeeded in Iraq so far, and I hope we succeed in setting up some kind of democracy. I think that's a good thing. Only God knows ultimately whether it is. But you know what I know is good, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and what turns my crank big time is a picture of a soldier getting baptized in a pond, in a pool, dug in the sand in Iraq. That's what this is about, folks. It's about shaking people up so they go, hey, you know what? I need something bigger than this world. And these guys are not only getting saved, they're getting baptized. You know what the significance of that is? A lot of people say they believe in Christ, but a lot of those who say they believe won't go so far as to be immersed in water to show their dedication to him. If you have not done this, you need to do it. And we're not even going to dig a hole in the sand. We've got a wonderful warm tank right there. Dedication. One of the basic truths of Christian life. Salvation and then dedication. He refers to dedication in terms of baptism and also the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands. Say, Pastor Dave, it sounds like a rough business meeting. They laid hands on people. No, in, first, in, in Acts chapter 6 and in 1 Timothy 4, we, we see the, the laying on of hands referred to in terms of acknowledging people who had been set aside to God's service. In Acts chapter 6, it was, I believe, the first group of deacons. And in 1 Timothy 4, it's a reference to a pastor. And if you've ever been in an ordination service... All of the ordained men gather around and put their hand on the person who's being ordained, being recognized by the church that God has called this person into the ministry. And it's entirely possible that in the early church they did that with everybody who went in the ministry of any kind. The laying on of hands is associated with other things in the scripture. I believe here it's a reference to this participation in the ministry and and uh, of working together in that way. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're very familiar with that, but you know what verse 10 says? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. If you are a Christian... 
who has not been baptized, you need to be baptized. And once you're baptized, you need to get busy in the service of the Lord. It is God's desire. It is God's intention. God saved you so that you would serve him. There is no such thing as a spectator in the kingdom of God. And we need to honestly look at our life and say, am I serving God in some way? And there are what we might call formal ways to do that and informal ways. The informal ways is the way you do it around your neighborhood, trying to reach your neighbors so the Jehovah's Witnesses don't. And the formal ways you do it is participating in the ministry here. We need to be people of dedication. Thirdly, we need to understand this basic doctrine in Hebrews 6. As he says, one of the basic doctrines of the Christian life is that of what I have called consummation or the end of all things. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He refers to it at, here in, in Hebrews as the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. This is a basic doctrine of the Christian life. If there is no resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, why in the world even come to church? Why not just live your life and then die? Zip! Gone! Out of here! Well, the reason is because God says there's going to be a judgment, a resurrection and a judgment. And in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 4, we read about part of, we read about one resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died in the Lord are, are referred to as being asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he was resurrected. Even so, God will bring with him from heaven those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. If you know Christ today, there are two possible futures for you. One is that you die and your body is placed in the ground. But at the moment of death, the scripture says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And you notice there that those who are dead in Christ are both coming with the Lord and coming out of the ground. You're saying, well, that's really quite something. Yes, it is. The person, the spiritual person in heaven with Christ is coming with him and the body will be resurrected and reunited together with the Spirit. And if we, praise the Lord, should remain until that day, we won't see death. We will just go and meet them in the air. Wouldn't that be great? Yes. That is the first resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous at the rapture. There is another resurrection. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. 
Why do people flee from God? Only if they're sinners. It's not talking about you and I, folks. It's talking about the sinners. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's going to be a resurrection for every human being who's ever lived. If you know Christ, it's going to be a resurrection to glory, to a glorified body, to a wonderful existence in heaven. If you do not know Christ, you will be resurrected. Your body will be brought out of the grave, and your soul will be brought out of hell and put together, and you will stand before God, and he will open the books, and he will look at the record of your life. And do you know why he will condemn you to hell? Because your own sin. Because of your own sin. Now, we rightly say that there's only one sin that will condemn a person to hell, and that's the sin of not believing in Christ as their Savior. And ultimately, that is the truth. But that's not why God is going to condemn people to sin. He's going to condemn them to hell, excuse me, because he will look at their life and say, look at all the sins you did. And he's going to say, away with you, I never knew you. We looked at the doctrine of hell on Wednesday night this week as we're working our way through Matthew. That's really, that is really a sobering study. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to believe in Christ. Because you are not going to make it past this earth except into judgment. And Christian friends... We need to really meditate on this doctrine of hell and then look at our neighbors and look at our friends and look at our loved ones. And and we ought to go out of here this morning feeling really uncomfortable. As I studied this doctrine of hell this week, I reflected on it and I thought, you know, I... I'm sure I must talk about hell when I preach sometimes, but I can't remember ever preaching on it. Now, I've only been with you for a year and a half, but still, I've done you a disservice. Hell needs to motivate you whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. And we need to talk about hell with people that don't know the Lord. Maybe it shouldn't be the first thing out of our mouth, But you know what? It is a basic of the Christian life. Because if there is no eternal judgment, then there's no reason to believe in Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, if in this life, believing in Jesus is all there is, he said, we're the most foolish of all men. It is a basic of the Christian life that there will be a judgment and there will be a second death. Now, come back with me to Hebrews 6 and try to grab the big point of this passage. 
Let me read these verses again. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. There's two things we need to understand here about growing and maturing in Christ. And the first thing we need to know is we need to know what the finish line is. And the finish line in the race of Christ is that word perfection. It may be translated maturity in some of your translations. It's a word that means to come to completion. We talked about it last week as we talked about uh, chapter 5, verse 15. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age or mature. It's the same word used there. God has set the finish line for the Christian life. You see, we all know where the starting blocks are. We say, oh yeah, Dave, you just told us all those things that are the basics that are referred to in Hebrews 6. Yeah, I, I know I need to believe in Jesus, repent from dead works. I know there's a judgment day. I know I need to be baptized, serving the Lord. Yeah, I know all that. These people knew all that too. What they didn't know was, that's just the starting block. There is a finish line. And the finish line is that we might be as mature as Jesus in terms of the righteousness of our character. That's the goal. That's what we're supposed to be running toward. Matthew 5.48 puts it this way. Be perfect. And it's the same word as, as uh, perfection or maturity here. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. One author said this, the goal of perfection for the child of God is a conformity to the moral nature of God. And the question I have to ask you this morning is, are you shooting for that finish line? Or are you, like these folks, hanging around the starting blocks, refusing to run the race? Any of us here who speak honestly would say, well, shoot, I, if Jesus was standing here, I don't measure up to him. I would say that of myself. But you know what, Christian? The fact that you don't measure up doesn't excuse you from trying. And the author of this book of Hebrews, by God's inspiration, says, let us leave the elementary things, the rudimentary principles, and move on to perfection. Can you imagine, <laughs> I can imagine it, because I've spent a little time with junior hires, can you imagine a track meet? And the kids are standing around the starting blocks, and they say, oh, it's time to start the 400-yard run. So they all get in their blocks. Bang. And three or four of them take off running. And the other three or four stand up saying, well, I thought that was a pretty good start, didn't you? Well, you know, I, I thought, you know, this guy in lane one, I thought he really did a great job. Man, I, I really liked his style. I liked the way, you know, I really like his shorts. You know, I like that new color. That is really nice. Yeah, you know, and, but these starting blocks here, they, they seem like they're set just a little bit funny, don't you think? You know, and, and can you imagine what the coach would do? Do you suppose the coach would come over and go, hey, what's happening, guys? You know? 
I've been around a couple of coaches. <laughs> now, in this day and age, they can't say what they really think. <laughs> Do you see how absurd that is? Well, it's just as absurd for the Christian who somehow wants to hang around the starting block of Christianity and not go on. It's not an acceptable choice. There is no reason, there is no excuse. You might have some, but God says, no, go on to perfection. Run the race. Maybe your life is going to be, you know, God has a certain time point for your life, and maybe you're not going to quite make it to Christ-like perfection before you die. That's okay. But you're going to be a lot farther down the road than if you stayed milling around the starting block. A baby grows and matures through normal processes of eating, exercising, sleeping, and teaching. I mean, it's... We expect that if we feed the baby normally and take care of their needs and their illnesses and play with them and talk to them, we expect to see them mature up. And, you know, by the time they're a couple years old, we expect a certain kind of ability. And by the time they're three years old and by the time they're ten years old, we expect them to know everything there is to know in the world. Because we don't know nothing. You know, but we expect that process of growth. It's normal. If if that's not happening in your life as a Christian, something's wrong. And that's what happened in these folks. And he says, "Folks, don't stop. Move on." I loved kindergarten. It was super. There's nothing finer and a nice bottle of chocolate milk and a fuzzy rug for a nap. What a wonderful thing. We should do that in the office here. <laughs> I love first grade. Learning to read and all that stuff. I loved everything about first grade except the, the kid with the leather jacket who was the toughest kid in the class. <laughs> in second grade, I think I remember learning to sing a Christmas song in German. I remember the first line, O Tannenbaum. That's it. I can remember moving down the hall from second grade to third grade to fourth grade to fifth grade in Warden, Washington. It was a great thing. I loved every grade I was in. But you know what? I had no desire to repeat any of those grades. I didn't want to stay in first grade for two years. I didn't want to stay in second grade for two years. I didn't want to stay in 11th grade for two years. And yet some Christians want to stay in first grade. That ain't right. It's not what God wants. It's not what, sh what we should want. May God help us run toward the finish line and not mill around the starting blocks. Heavenly Father, help us get in the race if we're not. And if we're in the race, help us to run harder to draw on your strength, to draw on your power, to draw on your word, and keep moving toward maturity. Father, help us to help each other 
as we run this race. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Father, only you know our hearts and lives. Only you know, know which ones of us are moving ahead and which ones of us are standing still. Father, draw us along. Before I say amen, if you're here today and you need some help getting in the race, moving along, Let's get together this week. Let's make some progress together. Heavenly Father, do your work among us. Cause us to honor you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com com, or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248, telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.